You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hello, everyone. This is Dirk Novell. Welcome to my podcast. On with me uh, today is a gentleman that I've gotten to know just recently. He's not a um, someone I've known for a long time, but I will say uh, Phil Treadwell, by the way. And Phil is a, it's an interesting, there's a parallel in terms of kind of what I do and what I'm trying to do and what he's done. But when I was thinking about getting into podcasting, he was very instrumental in helping me. He didn't know me. We had mutual friends. And so I always appreciate people who are willing to kind of reach out and help educate and kind of, you know, he's been there, done that. And he was just awesome about helping me kind of get going. But Phil is, uh, I'm going to let him in his own words kind of articulate what it is he does. But from what I know, Phil, he is kind of in that genius zone. I mean, I watch his podcast. He's very good at what he does. I know he was very good in my industry as well as a producer, but he's certainly in his flow. And I believe just from discussions and conversations I've had with Phil, he has passions around finding the right career and being passionate about what you do. So I'll stop rambling. Welcome to the show, Phil. Derek, man, I appreciate you having me. I love what you're doing. I love the concept and appreciate the kind words. It's uh, it's definitely a, it's, it's great to have people to collaborate with that are genuinely out trying to add value to people. So again, I'm just honored to be here. Cool. Yeah. I'm like, I'm a newbie and Phil's like an expert. So I'm a little not nervous, but just, you know, when we stop recording, you can do, give me some constructive criticism. I know you're pretty darn good at this, but in your own words, tell us a little bit about like, let's just say you're on a plane flying to do a speaking engagement and someone sit next to you and they say, Hey, Phil, what, what is it you do? How would you, uh, how would you answer that? Yeah, currently uh, I'm a business and mindset coach for the mortgage and real estate industry. I spent 19 years uh, as a mortgage industry veteran in all lay- layers of production and sales. Uh, I also obviously speak nationally in the industry. I'm, I'm a, a podcaster and a content creator. So really, in short, what I like to do is to help people take their business to the next level, find their passions and monetize that. So a lot of skill sets, like, I mean, being a producer in the mortgage business, uh, trying to be a podcaster, I'm a coach as well. It seems like a, a, a an interesting variety of skill sets. Is there one that you feel more inclined, like that, that mirrors you, or do you feel equally like good in all three? You know, that's an interesting question because for me, they're all three pretty much the same thing. So when you talk about mortgage production, I think people would agree that business has been done, is being done, and will always be done based on relationships. And relationships is about communication and influence with people. So then when you talk about podcasting, it's the same type of thing. It's about communication influence around a topic that you're passionate about, that you have knowledge in, and again, communicating with people and creating relationships. And I think all those skill sets transcend into coaching. You've got to have experience and understand what it is someone is doing or what they're going through in business, in their life, in their mindset journey. And you need to be able to create a relationship with them so that 
you can essentially achieve what Zig Ziglar says, which is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And through that process of creating relationship, add value and help them process through the things they need to do. So for me, I think that one of the things I've always loved is people. I love getting to know people. I love learning about people. I love learning about myself. I love that growth process and hearing how people have overcome challenges, how they you know, look at different things, how, you know, there's no one answer to any specific problem. There's no one solution. And so that's really what I'm passionate about. And in all three of those places within the mortgage industry, whether that's in production, whether that's in running a branch or a region, all of which I have done for, for years, or going into the coaching space or content creation space, it's really about how do you interact with people? How do you communicate, create relationships, create influence? And again, at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of how our world works. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I'll say it again. It's interesting. I mean, I think we have a lot of similarities. Um, like me, I, I'm very curious. I'm naturally curious. I, I listen a lot. I talk a lot too. I can, you know, I can ramble on, but I really uh, like interviewing you, interviewing people. It's interesting to me. And it feels like you kind of share that same interest as well. Absolutely. I do. I, I, I like people. I like getting to know people. I feel like there's a huge rock that we live on and I want to see and experience as much of as possible and understand different cultures. I mean, in a previous season of life, uh, I felt that I was called to full-time ministry. I ended up not actually, you know, uh, pursuing that call for a, a few different reasons. I, there was a different path that was in store for me. But even through that journey, I was really interested in apologetics and understanding other religions and other faiths. And I think it goes to this core passion that I've uncovered over the years, which is I love to learn. I love to grow. I love to see what that next thing is. And not that I'm not content. I just love that journey of getting to know people and peeling back the layers just because the world most of the time wants to kind of stereotype and pigeonhole. And, and those are there for a reason, but most people have a lot more to offer, have a lot more that, that they can provide in value and that they can teach you. And that's just something I, I love about the world in general and, and try to pursue those things as I build my business. Yeah. It's funny. I it's just like some of my podcasts go these crazy directions and you're talking about religion and I'm very interested in religion as well. And I have a book called World Religions, and I've always wanted to be credible on the different faiths. And and not that this podcast is going to get religious, but I have learned, like, just learning about different faiths is how similar a lot of our belief systems are. And, you know, you look around and there's a lot of division in the world. And that's the thing, like, talking to people, you know, that have different careers, et cetera, we're all very similar in a lot of ways. We all want a lot of the same things, yet we're different. But in the whole religion uh, uh, experience that I've had of reading about different faiths, it's like, it does boggle my mind. I mean, there's some core belief differences, but we all have very similar, I think, ways of looking at life. But yeah. um, anyway, so tell me a little bit about, um, before we get into the career or careers, uh, walk us through a little bit about your background, like where you're from. Uh, I, I'm curious personally, like what kind of guy you were like in high school. Yeah, uh, I know you're a tall, athletic guy. Were you an athlete? You know, where you went to college, what you studied, and then kind of coming out of school, paint us that landscape. Like, was it a, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do, or did you have a family that said you're going to do this, and then you did a job you hated? Or I mean, walk us through kind of how things happened for you. Sure, sure. No, I, I appreciate the question. 
you know, I grew up in uh, Southwest Missouri. My dad uh, was a builder. My mom was a teacher. So I'm kind of this mix of entrepreneurship meets academia. And I didn't have a choice whether or not to do good in school because my mom was a teacher and, and her background, she was a 4.0, 4.0 GPA in high school and college in her master. So, you know, my brother and I doing well academically was not an option, but we always had this lean toward entrepreneurship because I saw my dad run his own business and, and scale that and, and do different things. So, you know, through high school, uh, from growing up very young, uh, I had a baseball in my hand. My dad played college baseball, so uh, played sports all through high school. You know, uh, baseball and basketball were kind of my primary sports, but I ran track in there and played football and, and did a lot of different things. And I graduated high school and went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Uh, they had a phenomenal business program, um, top 5% in the country, and I knew I wanted to go into business. And at the time, I thought it was going to be financial management and investing. I had done stock portfolios in high school and thought that's what I wanted to do. And in retrospect, I mean, in the 90s, picking stocks was easy. So it wasn't a skill set that I had. It was just, you know, uh, how the markets were at the time. And um, so I, a couple years into college, ended up getting married young, had kids young. Uh, at the time, I was a store manager for Blockbuster Video. Uh, it's one of my quote claims to fame. It was one of my favorite jobs that I ever had. But I worked every weekend, every Friday and Saturday night, every holiday, all those types of things, as, as most people can relate to that, that's in retail. And I realized that uh, at the time, I thought I was going to go into that retail management world and was making more doing that already than what my degree was going to be. So I ended up stopped going to school because again, I was married, I was having kids, things of that nature, and spent a couple of years just kind of pursuing corporate America, did some corporate sales and some recruiting and some things like that, and ended up going back to work, moved back to Missouri, because uh, I was still living in Arkansas at the time, and went to work for my dad as a builder, and I really wanted to take over his company. And he said, you know, nothing would would make me happier if that's what you decided to do. But I need you to think long and hard before you decide you want to do this for the next 40 years. And he said, you don't remember how difficult it was in the late 70s and early 80s and all those times. And he said, I at least want you to see what else is out there. And so I thought if I took some interviews and took some other jobs that I could go do that and then circle back around and take over his company. And I answered, this is going to date me a little bit, I answered a newspaper ad, and they were looking for someone with sales and management experience, of which I had both. And it turned out to be a mortgage company. And again, I was still in Missouri at the time, and it was a little uh, little mortgage banker, independent mortgage banker, a little full eagle, so they did a lot of manual government stuff. And if you remember back to the time, and you know, this is around 2000, early 2004, there was a lot of subprime stuff, a lot of 8020s and a lot of that going on where this company really focused on the core loan programs. And if you couldn't do that, they had a department that you could send it to, they would try to get it done and give you a piece if they could. But in a world where most people in the mortgage industry were being taught the wrong way, I was very fortunate and lucky to have found a company that taught me the right way. They taught me loan programs. They taught me how to build relationships, how to put together a quality file, how to service your customers in your database. So I jumped into the mortgage business and um, was a loan officer from the very beginning. I had uh, you know four days of classroom style training. On the fifth day, I watched my boss go around and talk to his realtor referral partners. And the following Monday, he had a Xerox box full of black and white flyers and hands it to me and said, go talk to realtors and, and get them to send you business. And that's kind of my entry into, into mortgage. 
And I did well because again, I had come from sales backgrounds where, you know, you called 50, hundred people a day or you knocked doors or, you know, really difficult types of sales. And I remember thinking, cause I had a buddy that owned a, a door-to-door sales company that I'd worked for a little bit. And in that business, you are on somebody's doorstep. You don't have any reason to be there. They probably don't want what you have to sell and they have to pay you for it right then. Like that was what I understood sales to be. Well, then all of a sudden I get in the mortgage business and I'm supposed to go make sales calls in quotes to realtors, but you have a reason to be there. They want the product that you have and they don't have to pay you anything for it. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is the easiest kind of sales that I've ever seen in my life. So I had a different perspective coming in, fortunately. Um, And to make a long story short, I spent a few years as a loan officer, became a branch manager, um, decided I wanted to have my own branch. So I did kind of a net branch franchise kind of thing for a while, uh, as that led into me opening up my own broker shop. And that was leading into the financial crisis. So uh, the timing wasn't great. However, I was able to kind of have a parachute. Um, Wells Fargo had been recruiting me for a while, and they were doing recruit by acquisition at the time. I mean, one of every three loans in the country was going through them. So they went ahead and um, paid me enough to close down my company and bring my team over to them. Uh, did very well at Wells for a couple of years, was a top producer in a six-state region, but didn't love big bank world. So I exited out of that and, and uh, you know, kind of found a home for the next, you know, 10 years or so, an independent mortgage bank world where I was an area manager, regional manager, you know, national director, things of that nature. And, uh, you know, through that process is when I started the podcast, I was really wanting to add value and reach the people in my quote unquote audience, which was other mortgage professionals that I either wanted to recruit or to hire. And, uh, and yeah, you know, we could potentially go into you know that side of things, but that's, that's kind of how things unfolded. It was a lot of happy accidents. It was a lot of mentors, you know, helping me along the way, showing me the right way to do it. So I didn't beat my head up against the wall and uh, made a lot of mistakes along the way, but was able to learn something at every step of, uh, of the process so that that could continue to take me ultimately where I wanted to go. So did coaching come after podcasting? Yeah, so still podcasting today. We're yeah. we're almost five years into the podcast. I um I started the podcast in 2018, and again, it was really to reach mortgage professionals and to kind of build that brand. Um, truly, I didn't, you know, at this time in social media in the mortgage industry, no one talked about a personal brand or really knew what it was. There was this guy that was screaming on Instagram and Facebook, Gary V, and uh, that I didn't know who he was. And I, he started talking about this stuff and it was really resonating. It was like, my industry is not doing this and we need to be doing this. So I realized, uh, I started by putting out an Instagram page. And again, think early 2018 Instagram, it was quote of the day, pick of the day, outfit of the day. It was something of the day. I thought, let's do a mortgage marketing tip of the day. And I started an Instagram page and I called it mortgage marketing expert only because I owned the domain name. That was the only reason. And uh, we put out just on a white background with blue writing, a mortgage marketing tip of the day. And after 30 days, we had like a thousand people following the page organically. And after 90 days, um, I started running out of stuff to say. There was only so many one-liners or two-liners I could come up with that were any good where I didn't repeat myself. And so the podcast was an idea where I thought, if I bring on experts in the industry and then take their quotes, I can continue to feed this Instagram page. I didn't really think anyone would listen. There was only 
I think two podcasts in the, in the mortgage industry at the time. And so um, I started the podcast. It was a truly a ready fire aim kind of deal. I decided on a Sunday, I invited the five biggest personalities that I could think of. I only knew Barry Habib at the time, but I invited Barry and Tim Brahim, uh, Dave Savage, Todd Bookspan and Casey Cunningham uh, with Zenix and Barry, uh, Tim and Casey all said yes on Monday. So I can invite them on Sunday. They said yes on Monday. They were scheduled for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but I didn't know how to do a podcast. So I'm like, okay, on Tuesday, I need to figure out how to do a podcast. And uh, I, we, I figured it out, um, called some people and, and got some help. And uh, the rest was history. I didn't realize until I looked up about 12 or 15 episodes later that I'd had most of the who's who and the, the Mount Rushmore of mortgage. And uh, all of a sudden, people started listening and the podcast kind of blew up and it created other opportunities. And so I continued to use that to build my region as a regional manager and, and create some influence and really help people build their business because that was really the mission of the podcast and the mission of what I was doing. And so where coaching came in is a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to go back to production and build a team. I, I hadn't originated since I'd become a non-producing area manager back in 2013. And I didn't want to be a talking head. I didn't want to speak on stage or coach or, you know, podcast and not be able to truly know firsthand what this industry was like. You know, I'd been a top producer. I knew what that was like but I really wanted the context. And so even though I had built teams for people in my region, I'd really help them firsthand. I needed that credibility or at least the validation for myself. And in 2022, we went from zero, completely zero to about $3 million a month in volume in about six months. I hadn't originated in 10 years. My wife was on my team. She had never originated at all. We hadn't originated in the state of Texas, which we live in Dallas now. And, um, rates were going up a half a percent a month at that time. And so after we did that, where people are losing, you know, 60, 70% of their volume, and we're gaining market share, the question was, how are you doing it? Can you open up your playbook? And so we started doing some workshops. And that led to more formal coaching, I'd always had some one on one coaching clients where people had reached out and, and I would, you know, take an interesting uh, opportunity here and there. And I'd always coach the people that were on my team in my region. But where, where it came was I realized that's what I was passionate about, was speaking and podcasting and in turn helping people build their business and uh, a group and individual coaching platform made a lot of sense. So that's kind of how that unfolded. Yeah. And by the way, you're very good at it. I see your clips coming through and what I've really like, what, what kind of initiated me wanting to reach out to you was like, I have a lot of similar friends, like Tim Brahim and I are very close and he's been my coach for 12 years. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys you mentioned are great. Um, but what I love is like, you seem to be able confident and you seem to be able to get into the, like the personal and the inner stuff. I mm -hmm. say stuff, but that's one thing Tim and I have really gotten deep on over the years. We stopped talking about mortgage stuff and really started getting, you know, underneath the curtain, you know, behind the curtains and, uh, going deep on some of the things, belief systems, some of the things that maybe were creating issues for me or, you know, maybe not giving me the success or joy that I wanted out of life, but you seem to have gravitated with some of your content into that space, which I want to get to in a sec. But before I do, it's funny. I had, um, do you know who Brent Hicks is? I know the name. I don't know that I know him personally. Brent's a Dallas guy, big producer uh, for Cardinal, great dude, but 
I, I'm in this group with Tim. There's like 50 of us, Ryan Grant, Josh metal, a lot of guys, you know, yeah. Brent's one of the best. And he was talking about how he used to sell Bibles door to door and how he really learned. So when you're talking about your door to door, uh, experience, I was like, ah, oh, there's a parallel there, but okay. So, you know, you have all these things you've done, you've produced, you've managed, you're speaking, you're coaching. I, what I like to do, like for some 25 year old that's watching and they're like, huh, a lot of different things. I'm, I'm, what is it about? Like, what have you found out or surprised you over the years? Like, wow, I didn't see this coming. Like sometimes we just get so involved with our life and we just, you know, 10 years later, we like, whoa, what happened? But if you look back, is there anything that's not so obvious that you could share maybe even in each of those facets, because they're different jobs, careers for some people, like, what is it, the advice that you would want to give to somebody that's maybe thinking about being a mortgage person or a coach or a speaker, maybe something good and bad that kind of caught you off guard. You know, I don't know that there was anything that, you know, caught me off guard per se. Uh, if, if there is any one thing, I would say that everything is going to be harder than you think it is. It's going to take more effort, more grit, more of your mindset, more of your education, more sacrifice, all, all the stuff that you know it's going to take. In almost every case, it's going to take more than that. And I was a guy that uh, had great work ethic. I you know, swung a hammer for my dad almost every summer growing up and, you know, played sports at a, at a fairly high level. And I felt like I had great work ethic and I felt like I had a fairly strong mind and, and endurance. But I think if there was anything that maybe surprised me at different times throughout my career is there were things that just kind of happened. And I thought, well, that was easy. And then as you would fold it back, you're like, no, it's because of all this other hard work and things that I've done here to where when I finally pursued that it, it unfolded because of the work that I had done. And the other things that I thought would come easy, I'm like, oh, okay, there's a lot more work that it's going to take. So that's the first thing I would say that maybe caught me off guard. But one of the things that I think if, if I could go back and talk to, you know, 22, 24 year old me is that academia teaches most people that failure and success are polar opposites. You know, success is over here, failure's over here, and you need to decide which way you want to go. But after being mentored by, you know, dozens of really successful people, and not just monetarily, they have great relationships with their family, they have great relationships with their significant other, they're, they have health in their life, they have, you know, peace, you know, financially and otherwise, is, and, and of course, interviewing hundreds of people on my podcast, one of the common themes that every single one of them understand is that success and, and failure aren't opposites. They're actually stacked in front of you where you have to go through failure to get to success. You know, in academia, if I fail every quiz, fail every test, in that world, I'm a quote unquote failure. Even if I learned everything that I got wrong, hmm. we're in the real world, if you fail over and over, but you learned what happened and why, that's actually what success is built on. And so I tell people all the time, there's never a time where doing nothing is better than doing something, even if that thing is a failure. So inaction is never better than action, even if you fail, because if you take action and you win, great, you, you move the needle forward. But if you take action, you fail, that's now an opportunity to learn something. So either one of those are better than just staying in one place. So 
people need to not avoid failure or have a fear of failure. You need to embrace failure. It's not that we're setting out to fail, but we're going to set out to take action every single time and do something because that's at least going to create the opportunity to learn, to help you get where you want to go. Or you, you may surprise yourself and have some success at something that you didn't think you would. So that's a big, I think, theme that's kind of integrated, you know, throughout my life. And, and I, I guess another kind of high level topic that I talk a lot about, and we can go granular depending on where you want to go with the conversation, but the longest journey we're ever going to take is the one in our own minds, right? It's about how do you get your mind right? How do you understand about how to protect what goes in your eye gate and ear gate? How do you change your feedback loop, which is what we say to ourselves, right? 60, 65% of the words that we say every day are our own words. And that goes into our subconscious, which again, subconsciously is going to control our actions. It's going to control our words. And in turn, we can, by what we say, change that feedback loop. We can turn ourselves more positive and more productive just by changing the words that we say, the people that we're around, the things we listen to, the things we read. It's not a difficult thing. But we have to understand that our mind is the most powerful thing we have, and we have to protect it, and we have to exercise it like any other muscle. And ironically, there's a big link between your mind and your body. You know, my, my coaching program is called M1 Academy. M1 stands for mindset first. I think it's the most important thing because it controls our attitude and our actions, which are the only two things we actually have control over. But what I talk a lot about, too, is the physical side of things. You can't mentally have a great mindset when you physically feel like crap. So it's about getting your body right so that you can get your mind right so that you can go execute professionally, personally, relationally at an extremely high level. And so when someone is in a bad mood or has a bad attitude, I tell them you need to go get a workout in. You need to go exercise. You need to get outside. You need to get the blood flowing because happiness, the chemicals that are released in our mind, that joy, that comes from the oxygenation of blood in our mind, right? One of the reasons we don't wake up laughing or wake up smiling or just giddy, there's not enough oxygenation going on there. So exercising does that for us. We can change our attitude, change our mood in general, just by moving our body, by exercising, by working out, by, again, exercise can be taking a walk outside. You know, everyone knows when they're having a bad day, they're like, I just need to go walk for a second, get some air. Great. That oxygen is a huge thing. But what's really happening is your blood is moving and it's it's oxygenating your mind. It's changing your mood. It's putting you in a better place. So these are very basic things that we talk about. And so I'll get people, what do you, you know, personal trainer now? Because I post a lot about working out and eating right and things like that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I don't have a health and wellness company. We're talking about execution here. If someone will just make sure they get enough sleep, drink enough water, add protein to their diet, and move their body for 30 minutes a day, just those four things, it'll change your life. It'll change your business, right? Yeah. So again, we're talking about getting your body right to get your mind right to execute at a high level. And I don't think I understood that for years. I was executing at a very high level professionally with a podcast, with a region, and the, you know, over those years, I was gaining weight, I was getting less and less healthy. And I was telling myself that what I was doing professionally, what was going out here, that wasn't being affected by what was going on physically. And it absolutely was. And it kind of came to a head 
at the end of 2020, I was, I was uh, recording some sessions for Todd Duncan's sales mastery. And we did some before pictures, or I say they're now my before pictures. We did some pictures and I looked at them and I was like, damn, what have I done to myself? And I look back now, I haven't changed my content that much. I haven't changed my perspective. I've obviously continued to learn and grow, but my ability to execute, to relate to people, to create the efficiency, it's, it's been an incredible growth from that time period. And a lot of it was just because I made sure that my mind and actions and attitude were performing correctly because of what I was doing physically in my body. Wow. There's a lot. I mean, I love what you're talking about. That's stuff that I love to go deep on. And I'm going to try to pinpoint a couple of the things you said that I really love to talk about as well. Um, you know, I'm a big meditator um, and I'm big on thoughts and, you know, change your thoughts, it affects your emotions, you know? And so for me, it's, it's interesting when you talk about thoughts, you know, thoughts aren't who we are. Like those are like clouds in the sky. Like, huh, I'm comparing myself to Josh metal. I'm not good enough, you know? And then, and then I just watched that thought go away. Cause I, you know, I grew up comparing, I mean, my dad compared us to everybody. So, you know, that's like the ultimate thief of joy, which is a quote, but um, but yeah, it's really interesting. And this is really cool because what you're really doing is throwing advice, which is one of the questions I have to younger adults that are struggling, but be very aware of your thoughts. And then I'm a big fan of, you know, talking about physical and I mean, heck, I'm 200 pounds. I'm usually about 185. So I, I just haven't hit rock bottom. So I need to, I need to start losing some pounds too, but it's, um, it's an interesting, you know, this is really good advice, but like the thought part of it and your energy, I'm really big in a Joe Dispenza meditation and he says, change your energy, change your life. And I think what you're talking about a lot is changing your energy. And I, this is the thing is I don't think young adults think like this. I think they're consumed with maybe paying off college debt or getting a new house or a new car or whatever. And they just, they go full charge into a career. And I, I love what you're saying. Uh, it's hard though, I think for younger adults, cause you and I have life experience. Right. And we've come to this conclusion based off of failures and success, which is another thing I'd love to talk about, because I don't think, you know, when you talk about that, I'm curious as a coach, like people, it's not safe to fail. Like I was, for me, it wasn't safe to fail in my dad's eyes. Like I couldn't not be the best athlete or whatever. And so how do you get like subconsciously into someone's mind when, you know, you're talking about failure is part of success, but deep down subconsciously, whether they're aware of it or not, they just don't feel safe failing, you know, like those are big conversations that can take a long time to unravel. What would be your advice? I mean, cause that's not a simple, Hey, success and failure are one and the same. We're all good. You good. All right, great. It's not that easy. I know. How, how would you, how would you help somebody with that? Because there's a lot of belief systems that are deeply wired and can take a long time to, uh, you know, I don't want to say fix, but work on. Absolutely. I appreciate that question. This is probably one of the core things that we focus on both in our one-on-one -on -one coaching clients and in our group coaching clients. And it is not just a good question. It is the question. And the short answer is we recreate new belief systems around action and results because just what you said, people have deep rooted belief systems around success and failure because of things that previously happened in our life. And sometimes those 
because familiar is better, even if it's a painful familiar than the unknown, because we have that fear of, of the unknown. And it really continues to, to circle around fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of whatever dot, 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 dot. And so what I try to do with people, fear and hurt and all of these things, like you said, are at a very low frequency. So you have to learn to operate at a high frequency. But the first thing you have to understand is that those feelings, those emotions, those are about a need being met or not being met. Fear, jealousy, hurt, sadness, feelings are about a need being met or not being met. Same way with joy, happiness, excitement, whatever else. Feelings aren't truth. Feelings are feedback. So when you have a feeling, it's an opportunity to stop for a second and say, what is it that I need to be paying attention to here? That feeling's not necessarily truth. So once we stop for a second and get out of our feelings and use our logical mind, which we all have, and, and most of us want to operate in, we just don't know how to, that first thing is let's operate in a logical mind. I'm feeling a certain way. I either like it or don't like it, but what is it I need to understand here? The second thing is how do I get myself out of that place of feeling, which we've, we've already talked about. If you want to change your attitude, you take action. Those are the only two things that we can control. So if we want to control our attitude, we change our actions, and that's going to change our attitude. Now, as it, as it relates to the fear of failure or rewiring that, we also attach that to action specifically around daily habits and non-negotiables. One of the things I learned in the second episode of my podcast I ever recorded four and a half, almost five years ago with Tim Brahim, who was also my coach for about a year is that you have to have irrevocable promises to self. And we can all have those. We let ourselves off the hook very easily, but that's what a non-negotiable is. So we're going to, I help our team create daily habits and non-negotiables that they're going to hold themselves accountable to. And I'll help them hold themselves accountable. One of the challenges with coaching and mentorship and bosses is we try to get other people to hold us accountable when we need those other people to help us hold ourselves accountable, because that's where we start trusting ourselves. That's where these things get rewired. So again, here's how it happens. Our brain only distinguishes between wins and losses, not how big they are. It doesn't understand a big win or a little win or a big loss or a little loss. It only understands wins and losses. So in those daily habits, we're going to help them stack up things where they create a lot of little wins. And we, we, it's literally habit stacking. If anybody's uh, read Atomic Habits, we're going to habit stack to where for me, for example, I wake up really early and I'm a night owl. I don't like waking up early. So when I get up early, that's a win. Okay, make my bed. That's a win. Say some affirmations. That's a win. Go to the gym. That's a win create some content, that's a win. Come home and drink a protein shake, that's a win. All of a sudden, I've stacked up all these wins. So by the time I start my day, even if that first appointment, if that first call, if that first whatever it is, is a complete and utter failure, doesn't matter because in my mind, I've got all these wins and then a loss. Who cares? It's just one little loss. Because again, our brain won't, unless we consciously sit here and talk ourselves out of it, it won't distinguish that, well, that loss was pretty big compared to all these little wins. What, making your bed was a win? If you don't want to make your bed, then yeah, that's a win. Anytime you do something and make a conscious choice to change your decisions and to move it into a more productive area, that's winning. So when you do that for a short period of time, you're all of a sudden going to create a new 
reward system, a new uh, achievement, or uh, what's the word, uh, where essentially the level of, of how good things are, that whole system in our mind changes. And like so a now hierarchy. Yeah, kind of kind of a hierarchy or a, uh, a situation where all the little failures all of a sudden don't mean anything. So the medium sized failures mean less and the big failures mean less. And so what happens is then we hit a medium sized failure and that's not a big deal because we were able to get so many small and medium sized wins. And that's what happens is it's a simple process that doesn't take very long to where all of a sudden we're like, wow, failure is an opportunity for me to learn something. We all fail every single day. We just in our minds want to protect ourselves from that because we don't want to think we failed. And all of a sudden, if we change it, and again, I know failure is a strong word. So that's why I like to use wins and losses because we're a little, I'm an athlete, right? It's wins and losses. You're not going to win every single time you're going to lose. But when you lose, what happens with a coach? Okay. Let's be pissed off about it for a second because we wanted to win, but what can we learn in that situation that's going to make us better for next time? And that's all we're talking about. The problem is, as I said earlier, that's not the way academia works. They don't give you an opportunity in most cases. Some do. I'm, I'm talking in generalities. Don't you know? cancel me or, or write your congressman. But in, in most cases, academia, it's you either win and succeed or you lose and you fail. There's no failing over and over and over. It's one of the reasons I love athletics. It's one of the reasons I use a lot of metaphors for that. And, and the last piece that I'll use just to frame it up for people so that they'll give themselves permission to fail is baseball. Baseball is the best metaphor for this. You know, if someone is a has a 200 batting average, they're probably on, on a professional level, they're probably double A, maybe triple A, 200, 250. If they're a 300 batting average or above, not only are they in the major leagues, they're probably in the all-star game. You start getting 350, 400 batting average. You're one of the greatest of all time. You're for sure in the Hall of Fame. Okay, now let's think about this for a second. To be one of the best in the major leagues right now, or to be one of the greatest of all time, you're talking about those people fail 60 or 70% of the time. And it's not just a small failure. You're walking in front of tens of thousands of people multiple times a night, walking your butt back to the dugout, completely failed. And these are the best in the world at what they do. Some of the greatest of all time failed 60, 65, 70% of the time. Now, on a professional level in the mortgage business or real estate business or whatever industry you're in, how do we reframe in our minds the best at what we do get to fail 60 or 70% of the time and still be considered the best at what they do? How do we do that? We need to reframe what a failure is. A failure isn't just this monumental thing where we lose our money and lose our house. Yeah, those are epic failures. But the problem is there was a ton of little failures along the way that no one paid attention to that built up to this epic thing. And had you paid attention and been honest with yourself about these wins and losses throughout the day, and you really self-regulated and were self-aware, it never would have gotten to that place. So I to kind of put a, a, a big exclamation point on that, People need to follow the 11th commandment, as I like to say it. A mentor told me this a long time ago. The 11th commandment is, thou shalt not fooleth thyselfeth. <laughs> Don't lie to yourself. Be self-aware. All these little things that you think are no big deal are little failures, and those are stacking up because, guys, there is no staying flat. You're either progressing or you're regressing, right? Darren, Ho Darren Hardy wrote the book Compound Effect. 
There's another book out there called The Slide Edge that I think talks about this concept a little more. You're either improving and growing and progressing or you're declining and regressing. There is no flat. And as soon as we understand that, we'll pay attention to all those little things a lot more. I love it. I mean, a lot of gold here. I mean, there really is. I mean, I know you're a smart and I, I've listened to you, but you're you're very wise and and you're throwing a lot of things at our audience. And in, in my mind right now, I'm thinking about like my son who quit baseball and he's three years into lacrosse and he hurt his knees. So they put him at goalie and he's playing on a really good team, like an all state team. And he's so hard on himself, but I'm like, if only young adults, high school, like they could think like this in terms of reframing these failures or loss, whatever you want to call as just a way to get better. I mean, it would be so valuable. And that's, that's really what this podcast is, is I'm really, you know, you're making me think differently about like advice I would give to people that maybe are struggling and they're like, I don't know what the heck I want to do, but I think you got to love yourself. And that's not a word that, you know, is thrown out in the business. Um, you know, I remember I, I used to work with a guy named Tim Sanders and he became a speaker. And I think he wrote a book called love is the ultimate app or something. And when he said it, I'm like, love business, what are you talking about? But I think, you know, you have to first be gentle on yourself and go easy on yourself. And, uh, and I just wish like my daughter and my son could look at some of these, I don't want to say failures or losses, but look at them as building blocks become better. So this is really good stuff. Um, getting back, uh, by the way, I love baseball too. And I, you made me think I grew up playing with John Olerud and I was pretty good. And then I started playing with him in the all-star. He was a couple years older than me. And I remember my dad saying, you know, you're maybe not the, the best player. Around. <laughs> and, and I remember it really kind of shook me because I, I had a lot of maybe insecurity, but a lot of confidence built around athletics. But, you know, John was almost hit over 400. I think, I don't know if he was with the Mets or the Blue Jays, but one of the best hitters I've ever seen. And, you know, you're right. I mean, he hit under 400, maybe 350 on average. I don't know, but that's a really good way to look at it. Um, you know, these guys aren't batting 900. They're not batting 800. Um, so getting back into advice on careers, like we're talking about mortgages, you're talking about coaching, we're talking about podcasting, you know, I either want people to be watching this running away from what you do or running to it more interested. You've seen a lot of people, especially as a putting your coaching hat on succeed, like great producers, right? Do you feel, I guess the question is like, I'm around these guys like metal and Craig Strant and you know, they're really, really into what they do. Like it's not a, they're not faking it. It's a race. They want to win, but they love it. What is what do you see? And like, successful producers and success is a big term doesn't mean money rich you know but people who love what they're doing what is it that you see in these people is there a consistent theme like a couple things that younger adults might be interested in knowing about yeah for sure i mean there, there's there's kind of two pieces to this the first is uh one of my favorite quotes is a tony robbins quote that's success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure so a lot of times, especially in the social media world, we look at success in the way that we probably shouldn't. It's measured on bank accounts and cars and houses and private jets and all the stuff. And again, we can all have those goals. I'm not here to say money is bad, having things are bad, quite the opposite. But those things come out of an abundance of you adding value to people. 
people pay for solutions to their problems. So the way to make a ton of money is to solve people's problems and add tons of value to them. And as a byproduct, you'll make plenty of money along the way. So that's, I think, the, the, the first part of this. And the way to get there is you need to find someone who has done what it is you want to do and ask them how they did it or go work for them. And if you don't have access to them, you need to consume their content. I just put out a, a video recently from a clip that I did uh, months and months ago, and I was on a podcast talking about this. Most of the time, we look at videos and content on social media in a couple of different ways. We're either trying to learn a little tactic or get some motivation, but we put a little asterisk on it in our mind that that person's trying to get you to listen to their podcast or they're getting trying to sell their book or whatever. But the truly elite level people aren't worried about those things. They're not trying to get you to listen to their podcast. They're not trying to make money. Why? Because they don't need to. They've already achieved a, a level of financial success. They're now they're thinking about legacy. How do I help enough people get to where they want to go to where I made an impact on that? Okay, why does that matter? It matters because almost everything you need to know about how to be successful can be found in someone who has actually gone out and done what it is you want to do. So we find these gurus or wannabe gurus, and even in the coaching world where they are wanting to coach you and sell you a dream or sell you a lifestyle that they didn't earn that way. You can't find out how to climb Mount Everest by someone that's never climbed Mount Everest. Oh, no, no, but I, I climbed, climbed Mount Fiji. Okay, I don't, I'm not a mountain climber. I don't know the differences between those two mountains, but I'm pretty sure they're very, very different animals. So you also have people that say, well, no, I do. I'm, I'm a world speed indoor climbing champion. So I'm going to help you climb Mount Everest. Okay, is there some techniques and things on some holds and some climb can, that they can help you? Sure. But if you're wanting to do something, you need to find someone that's actually done it and people don't focus on that enough. Now, as you're doing it, the reason I talked about the first part of fulfillment, you've really got to understand why you're wanting to do it. What is going to create fulfillment in your life? What is it that you're excited about? And that takes some time. You've got to figure out your why. And I know that gets thrown around a lot. It's almost become a little bit cliche. I think Simon Sinek does a great job of explaining what a why is, but a lot of times it's carved in a corporate setting. What we need to do is find out our personal why. And it's very, very simple. There's something that happened to us in our life. A why is from your past. What is something that happened to you in your life that changed you in a way that you're now pursuing this goal, this career, this path? and really try to understand it. What is significant about why you do what you do? And your first answer won't be the right answer. Okay, what's significant about that? What's significant? And you really have to drill down to where you find out, man, there's a thing either good or bad that happened to you that changed your wiring that's really driving you as a person, as an adult. And once you have a hold of that, why you're now able to go out and, and, and create the drive to pursue that thing. And you're, you're again, the, the next stage of that, if you will, without getting too deep, is you're then going to find a cause. Simon Sinek wrote another book called The Infinite Game, which takes, okay, we already understand our why. Now, what's our just cause? What is it that we're pursuing? So these things go together. And the reason I talk about that is it's okay to go get a job to want to make a ton of money. 
There's a, it's good to, to buy the stuff, to buy the houses, to buy the cars. But at some point, you're going to have to find out why you're doing what you're doing and what the objective is that you're wanting to accomplish. How are you going to be fulfilled? How are you going to create significance in what you do every day? And the sooner you find it, the faster you'll excel in what you're doing because money only motivates you for so long. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, it's such powerful stuff you're throwing out there. And I keep going back to a mindset of a young adult. Like I want them to be safe enough and, and I want them to think like this, you know, I want them to, you know, and they may not have people in their life, family, you know, loved ones that support this kind of conversation. But I think that there's just people that don't, it's like a tunnel. They don't even know how to think like this. And so I mean, they can think like this, but they don't because it's just not in their whatever. But I think this is great. I mean, if anything, I know that someone watching this podcast, your words are going to change their life. I mean, if it's one person, I mean, that's my why is, is if I would love to, I, I, I was bullied a little bit and I feel like the whole career and society and I'm not a victim, but I think it's, it's kind of like a bully. Like it forces people into you know, lives, lives. And, and a lot of times they're not happy in their career. And I just wish that we could shake up the system a little bit. And the, all the stuff you're throwing at people, uh, right at my audience, I mean, this is life changing stuff. I, I, I'd love to go deeper. I know we don't have time. But, you know, in my mind, I'm curious what what, what that why was for you as a kid. Um, but you're certainly motivated. Um, and you're certainly like, exceptional at like, you know, the emotional part of this, I, I guess one of my questions is like, I'll be honest, I've struggled in the mortgage business. I was a big producer and then I just kind of got burned out. But sometimes I don't feel like I can truly make an impact. Like I like talking about deep stuff. And a lot of times I feel like I'm commoditized in this business. And the, the say the skill set or the value of Dirk isn't really leveraged or utilized. It's like, you might want me to be your good friend, but you know, you might go to rocket mortgage because they're whatever. So I've struggled with the commoditization of this industry and maybe that's just my issue. Um, but like listening to you, you're so deep. Did you ever experience that as a, as a lender or did you just say, Hey, this is the business we're in. It is what it is. And you accepted it. Uh, was that, do you have similar feelings about the mortgage industry or am I alone? No, I think I think everyone feels that from time to time, especially in the market that we're in right now, where that margin between some lenders and others is is expanding, right? The the compression. And so I think everyone's going to feel that to a certain degree. What I want people to understand, and I know it's not the same thing. So for mortgage professionals that are hearing this that are going to roll their eyes at what I'm about to say. Um, understand there's a real concept here and it, I, I lived, eat and breathed it. And that's one of the reasons we grew in, in 2022 is rates were just going crazy. You do have to offer a fair rate, a fair price. You know, you've got to be quote unquote in market. You can't be, you know, if, if the market's offering six and you're at seven and a half, that's not going to work. Right. And some people are like, well, I got to be within a quarter. I, I don't think there's a number. I think it correlates to value. Like I said earlier, people pay, for solutions to their problems. Like, well, they're not going to pay $50 a month difference, but are they, you know, we pay $25 a month for services that we may never use. And we're talking about if you create enough value as an advisor and an ongoing relationship and use their home to build real estate wealth, 
that's what our team name was, your brew team. And that brew is an acronym for build real estate wealth. If you create an ongoing relationship with someone and you have enough value and service over time, people will pay more money for that. They absolutely will. What I was passionate about at this stage <laughs> of life was building real estate wealth, creating passive income, creating net worth with real estate. That's really the biggest problem that most people have. And both of them can be accomplished through mortgage and real estate. I also believe that most people between the ages of 20 and 60 have some type of a desire to sell everything and live in a VW bus or an RV and travel the world. Or if they're not wanting to do that and very passionate about what they do, they want to create net worth for retirement purposes and whatever else. A lot of nonprofits, a lot of ministries don't necessarily have retirement plans and you've got to do that another way. So I was very passionate about that. And so that was the model and value that we created is teaching people to do that. So the example that I said that they may roll their eyes at is a Rolex because I had a conversation uh, that I recorded that I put out a piece of content and a guy on LinkedIn commented and said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's a mortgage. Um, people are always going to go with the lowest rate. It's not a Rolex is what he said. And I thought it was interesting that he brought up the Rolex example because that actually is truly a commodity. So if you have a Rolex that's $20,000 and an identical Rolex that's next to it, that's $23,000, but the guy selling it or gal for $23,000 says, yes, but I'm going to clean this and service this for life. I'm probably going to buy the $23,000 Rolex. Now, at what number does that value not become enough value anymore? It's somewhere, would I pay 30 instead of 20? Would I pay 25 instead of 20? I don't know exactly, but there is a way to understand that. And so that's why I thought his example was a terrible example because guys, if you're talking about rate and being commoditized, it's because you're not offering enough value that people feel like what you're offering is enough to bridge the gap. If you really want to go deep on this, there's a great YouTube video that talks about the value stick. It's a Harvard Business Review article, and it's super entertaining. It's not dry. It's not academic. On the value stick, where it talks about the willingness to pay, willingness to sell, willingness, you know, the value in between, it really explains all of this stuff in detail. And where your profit is is your their willingness to buy versus your willingness to sell. That's really the profit is in between there. If their willingness to buy is above what you're willing it to sell for, then that's profit. And that profit is in terms of value. How do you create that satisfaction in people? If I tell people, listen, here mm -hmm. is the strategy that I'm going to help you with over the next six months, year, two years, three years, for you to achieve your financial goals through real estate both your real estate assets, the debts that are attached to it, and any other thing you've got going on. And we're going to work with your CPA, and we're going to work with your financial advisor, and we're going to show you this path of you want to retire, so you need $7,000 a month in passive income after we've worked it out, blah, blah, blah. Great. Here's the way to get there. Well, would you pay $100 a month to have someone that's organizing your CPA, your financial advisor, all these professionals, and they're walking you through this plan, would you pay $100 a month, $200 a month? What is that number that you'd be willing to pay to have this person walk through you quarter after quarter after quarter? That's what people don't understand. If you looked at your financial advisors that probably aren't touching your portfolios other than a year at a time, and they're charging you a couple percent on your assets, and you broke that up on a monthly basis, you're paying hundreds of dollars a month 
to someone that's not actively working. And if people don't reframe this that way, then yes, you are a commodity. And I don't mean that harsh. But if you're not willing to create value and solve people's problems, then you need to go try to be a low cost leader. Guys, I'm not going to help you. You're not going to hear from me again, but I'm going to give you the lowest damn mortgage that you can get. And that's the way you need to build your business. And there's something to be said for that. But I'll go back to Simon Sinek. And this is the last thing I'll say on this piece of it. In Start With Why, there's a quote that really has nothing to do with why, but it, it impacted me huge. He said, selling for less is a lot like doing drugs. At first, it feels really, really good. But to get that same feeling, you have to do it more and more and more. In business, we just call that a commodity. But in the real world, we call it a junkie. And we need to think about that. There's a lot of people in the mortgage and real estate business that are just straight up junkies because they're trying to lower the cost and lower the cost and lower the cost and lower the cost. And then they scream, but I'm a commodity. Then don't lower your costs. Listen, I have a professional mortgage practice. We help you build real estate wealth. We're going to help you achieve your long-term and short-term financial goals. We're going to help you manage your real estate assets and the uh, debts that are attached to it. We understand a mortgage is one of the largest debts that most people get into. Most people think we just do mortgage loans, and we do, but here's the other things that we do. Guys, these are things that you need to be talking about with your clients and, and in any business. I know we're talking mortgage-specific, but if you're selling insurance, if you're a financial advisor, if you're a bricklayer, hey, I know that my quote for this retaining wall right here is a little higher, but one of the things we're going to do is every six months, we're going to come back and check. Is it leaning? Is water pooling? Is there some stuff going on here? If there is, we're going to take care of it for you. Guys, that's huge value. I would pay more if someone says, I'm going to make sure that this thing is maintained the right way. We're only limited by the creativity that we have, and we can either go be a junkie or we can be business advisors and we get the choice to choose. We just don't make that decision. Yeah. I mean, a lot about the mindset, right? I mean, you you know that you offer this value and there's people in our business that don't think like that. And maybe they don't think they offer the value. So it's making me think like you can enter, I'm talking to my audience, but you can enter a career and there's different ways to do the job. You can be the junkie or you can be somebody like Phil or a top producer that looks at it through a different lens. And I think that's great for people to look at. Um, the other thing that I'm just kind of thinking about is all the books you're throwing out. Like you are naturally, I always say, pay attention to what you do on a Saturday for seven hours. You know, that feels like a half hour or pay attention to like, you know, even the young kids addicted to the social media, like pay attention. I had uh, one guest and his son's always on car stuff. He loves engines and the others. I, Craig Strent's son's really into roller coasters. And so pay attention to those things. I mean, those are the clues, I think, in life that maybe help us figure it out. And like for you, you're a consumer of re you, you reading. I mean, you're reading all these books you're really naturally interested in feeding your mind. I mean, it's yeah. not a, you, it, you can half-ass it and do it like, cause you have to, but you're doing it. My guess is on a Saturday or Sunday, you might be reading a book on improvement on some, whatever it is, right? I mean, that's you. Yeah, it, it's totally true. And, and so the second part of that that you said, I'll, I'll answer first and go back to the first part. Yes, I consume a ton of content, podcasts, books on Audible, books in person. Um, I, I go through several books a month. I think I think the, the statistic I heard is the average 
uh, male anyway, consumes uh, 0.5 nonfiction books per year or one every two years. And that's the average male and in, in nonfiction books. I try to consume four to five to six nonfiction books a month, business books, positive mental attitude books, things of that nature. And a lot of the people that I'm around do, do as well. And a little side tip in there for those that are listening, especially maybe on the younger uh, group that hopefully we haven't lost you. One of the most important things is, is the Jim Rohn quote of we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. I don't know if there's any scientific evidence that proves the numbers five, but there is scientific evidence that we start to emulate those people that we spend the most time with. And if you'll level up in the people that you associate with, you're, you in turn will, will level up. Having said that, the first part of what you're talking about is uh, there, you know, they, I don't know if it was a movie or, or a video I saw a long time ago where they were talking about, you know, in high school, they ask you, if you could do anything in life and get paid for it, or money was no object and you didn't need money to live, what would you go do? And that is kind of the insight to who it is you want to be professionally. Well, I don't think it's quite that black and white. I think it does provide, again, a lot of feedback in that thing. From day one, I was always a good student, but the bottom of my report card, it would be like, Phil likes to talk. Phil's a talker. Well, okay, maybe that was a... Uh, foreshadowing of me being a podcaster, you know, me liking to having to, to talk to people and get to know people. I like to consume content for fun. I like to learn new things. I've been exposed to a lot and do a lot because I want to learn. Like whenever chat GPT came out, I wanted to learn what is this thing about? Every time a new social media platform comes along, I want to get on there and play with it a little bit and break it. I don't know why it's just kind of how I'm wired. So I try to create opportunities where, okay, I consume a ton of content for fun. Does that mean I'm going to try to go be paid to consume content? No. What I figured out is some of that content is valuable to other people. And I've now become a curator where I can turn and share that with people. And there is a value to that. And so that's what I want people to understand. If, if you're consuming a ton of car content, maybe it's about being a designer create cars, you can be a mechanic, like, there's so many an engineer who knows what it is. But it's something to pay attention to, they're probably not going to go into a fine art if they really love mechanical stuff, right? If they uh, spend all of their time, you know, one of my one of my stepdaughters, she's a really talented artist, both graphic digital and like hand drawn and paint and whatever. She's probably not going to be an accountant. Right. So we, you try to create some things around that and let them do it. So I, I love that you brought that up. Pay attention to what your passions are. Pay attention to things you're naturally drawn to. And that can give you some good insight into not only what you want to do as a career to create that fulfillment, but where there may be an opportunity to make a ton of money along the way. Yeah. So I love this. I mean, you I could go on and on, but I know we can't. Um, I have a couple of questions I ask before we wind this down that I ask every guest, but before I ask these two questions, the area that you mentioned that I'm fascinated by that, I don't know if I'm on the spectrum of alarmists or not a big deal. I, I mean, I, I, I know I'm not a, not a big deal. I'm more probably towards the alarmist. Like it really worries me, but like AI, and I'm just, I want to ask you a little bit about that. I, um, I was reading an article yesterday you mentioned nonfiction and they're talking about like, you know, the voiceovers, people who narrate books, audiobooks on tape, that it's really take like real people are getting bounced out big time. And a lot of these booksellers are starting to use AI for their voiceover, especially with nonfiction. 
in the world of mortgages and you know one click automation rocket mortgage etc what's your take i mean i know it's a long conversation but if you were to kind of bullet point it do you feel like because i think younger adults need to think about careers like ai and you know i really think i mean it's we can't be blind to the fact that i mean ai is here now and my feeling is ai is like our children and they're learning from us right now like they are taking notes and they are becoming very like us and scares me but in terms of the mortgage industry coaching podcasting what's your take on how ai might influence those industries great question so the the first part the philosophical view on ai is the 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 fear that i think a lot of people have that you know elon musk talked about in that rogan podcast years ago is that it's going to grow and evolve so fast beyond what we can do that it's going to quote unquote take over and there's all, all kinds of sci-fi movies my practical approach to it is, of course, we're not going to be able to control something or put safeguards around something that we don't fundamentally understand. So I understand why Elon Musk and others are trying to tell people slow down a little bit so that we can get our arms wrapped around it. And my advice to the average person is you need to be start becoming an early adopter. When they talk about it took you know, 50 years for a TV to get in every household from the time it was introduced. And then it shortened to 20 years with a microwave. And then it was, you know, five years or however, I don't know, I'm, I'm throwing out numbers, but it was shorter for computer and then internet. And, and now it's that the, the cycle of information and the speed of information adoption is so much faster. I think we need to do our part in understanding. We can't just wait until we no longer have a choice to learn and understand something. It's easy from someone that likes to learn new things versus maybe someone that that's kind of stuck in their ways. But ironically for me, it seems a lot of the people that are stuck in their ways are the ones that are shouting the loudest about their concerns about this stuff. So my advice on a practical level is go and learn it and understand it so that whenever the conversations are happening, you're a voice of experience. You're someone who can talk intelligently about it. And if people will do that, it may never evolve into a place that's out of our control because we have enough educated people that says, what about this? What about that? That's how our country was founded, ironically. But, And I'm not going to go into the political space, but that's the biggest problem we have politically is we have people shouting about one candidate or another that's standing on the street and can't tell us anything you know, about eighth grade social studies. But again, that's that's another conversation. The second part about the the applicability in the mortgage industry, um, I just had Shashank Shakar on my podcast, uh, CEO of Insta Mortgage, brilliant dude, known him for years. Uh, he just put out an ebook about Chat GPT for lenders, and it's something that I've participated in. And a few things people need to understand is the the uses are endless. I mean, from I did this the other day. Uh, uh, I've got Travis Tom that was on the podcast. He's got a platform that we're gonna do a webinar around and, and do some demos. And I, I wrote a little description, I'm like, that's not very good. But my mind was just kind of foggy. It was the end of the day. So I literally copy and pasted it and put, uh, told ChatGPT, make this better, colon, and then pasted it. And it gave me like a really good description. I'm like, sweet, paste it, and, you know, changed a couple of words. So uh, if it's in real estate, it can write your listing descriptions better. If you're a mortgage professional, it can write blogs for you. It can write emails for you. It can take your existing scripts with realtors or clients and make them better. You can literally put, make this better, make it more authoritative, make it third person or first person. Like we just need to understand that it will do anything we want it to do, but it's not human. 
it's going to take the knowledge of what it knows. It, I think humans can come up with thoughts on our own that weren't programmed based on all of our experiences. And I think that that's conceptually what they're trying to do with AI is to have them apply things that they've learned. But I still don't think it can apply things beyond what it was programmed to do. And I think humans do have that ability. There's kind of an intuition there. So I say that to say, use it to create efficiency. You need scripts, you need, you know, and not just in copywriting, you could say, hey, I am wanting to do this many videos, this many social media, blah, 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 blah. Give me a content calendar, right? It can also interpret information. In one of this new webinars that uh, was was the the version four or generation four, whatever it is with chat GPT, he was saying that they took hundreds of pages of IRS tax code and pasted it into the chat and then gave a tax scenario and said, what's you know the tax situation? And it spit out the answer. Now, we need to still check ourselves on it. But if you're driving along in your car and a client says, hey, I was thinking about this and this you know, strategy that you gave, but you know, we may only be here four years, about what would I owe on it in four years? Well, any mortgage professional knows how to go find an amortization chart and get that number. But why not put in chat GPT? If someone buys a home for 400000 puts 20000 down, has an interest rate of this, what is their loan balance going to be in four and a half years? And they'll spit out a number. Is it going to be to the penny? Theoretically, it should, but even if it was off for a little bit, the client's only wanting to have a general idea, right? So what can we do to create efficiencies? It's not about doing something different or creating an entire different space than, you know, a lot of people think new technology needs to come up with a new space or completely replace what we're doing. Well, why can't this just help us do what we already do better? And that's really what that whole conversation is about. So I won't take any more time other than definitely go listen to, to the Mortgage Marketing Expert podcast episode with Shashank Shakar on it. Um, has some great ideas and a little anecdotal thing that I've actually tried myself is really cool. He said, has nothing to do with mortgage. But you could literally put, I have these things in my fridge and these things in my pantry, and I don't know what to cook for dinner. Give me some ideas. And not only will it give you the list, it will give you the recipe. And so I played with this the other day. I was trying to show a, a guy in my office just kind of what it could do. And I put, we've got like eggs and flour and milk and cheese and cinnamon. And like we literally pulled like seven or eight random kind of basic things. And it gave us a list of six different things we could cook that were actually decent meals and gave us the, the thing about it. So there, there's so many cool things that it can do like anything else. We just need to take time and, and a word of encouragement. If anyone will take on a Saturday or a Sunday, two or three hours and really experiment with it and research it and understand what it'll do, you'll be in the top 5% of chat GPT users, you know, in the country because it's only been out for a few months. Yeah. Fa it's fascinating to me. The only thing I'll say about it that stuck out, I was, I, I have a, we're all, I, it was impact theory and he was interviewing, I want to say, I, I, you might know who he is, Raul, uh, Raul, uh, anyways, he was talking about like, you know, uh, he said a moron's IQ is like 70, Einstein was like 160 and the smartest person ever was like 210, which is 3x of a moron. And I, I don't know if moron's the right word, that's his word, sure. but he says, Ch this chat is going at a thousand X. So it is going so quickly that we don't even know. It's like two plus two isn't four. It's like, we don't even know. We can't keep up. It's like, it's going so quickly that we can't even fathom where it's taking us. Like, you know what I mean? It's so, 
It's an interesting thing. I think it's really great that you know so much about it because I do believe that it's going to be play a part in our industry and other industries. Okay, so my two questions, and some of them are pretty basic, and sometimes Let I me, get. A, I, mean, I want to throw one more thing in here, yeah. just for the future of our industry. Yeah, we're just same with the tax code example. We could paste. Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac guidelines or HUD guidelines, and then give a loan scenario and ask chat DPT, does this scenario fit into those loan guidelines? Mm -hmm. How much more efficient will that create underwriting? What other types of programs could we create to streamline the underwriting process? Assuming we look at it of adding value to our partners, to our clients, yes, it is going to play a huge role if people will understand that this is an opportunity to make all of us better, more efficient. So I just wanted to throw that, that one last thing out there. That's really interesting. And it made me think, I had an appraiser on a couple of weeks ago and I asked him a question about AI and he was saying, and you might know this better than I, but like comps, right? Give me, give me five comps, punch in an address. And he says, the problem right now is it's not current. It's not updated. It's pulling off a 2021 data, but maybe there's, you know, I would assume that's going to change quick, but like, as even as an appraiser, who's trying to comp a house, that's complicated, you know, give me six comps within 10 miles. I mean, it's going to help for sure. And it, again, it may replace jobs, but we can't be blind about it. No, but I mean, even in that situation, have the appraiser go pull the 25 or 30 or 50 comps that they're already pulling. And if they're trying to figure out which ones are the best ones for this house, paste all of the descriptions of those comps in and then the description of your house and say, what are the best six or eight comps? And then the human can go and determine of those six that provided, what are the three that I need to put in the appraisal or, or whatever else? Like, it can narrow things down. It can analyze data. Like I literally the other day said, write a blog about this. Again, there was kind of a demonstration, write a blog about this. It was a fairly complex mindset, blah, blah, blah. Gave me a pretty long blog article. I said, great. Now give me a summary that I can paste about it. it gives me a paragraph. I said, okay, now give me a great title for it. Right. It's, it's, it's conversational. And I think we, we just need to, to realize there's a whole huge capability of what this thing will do. So again, I, I don't want to, to, to beat a dead horse, but I think you're right. There's a huge efficiency factor here. We don't need it to come up with all the information per se. Let's give it information that we already know we can provide and see if it'll help us narrow it down. And by the way, I mean, you can elaborate on this. The art of giving it information is prompter, right? Or prompting. Right. I mean, that might even be a career that we don't even know about. hundred percent. Um, have you ever read a book, the five love languages? I have many times. So I was thinking my, several times, <laughs> my wife's language is not, we have different languages. <clears throat> Hers is, um, words of affirmation. Mine's I've got a couple, but I was thinking about next time I make her angry, I can ask chat, um, to write a letter based on her love language. I'm going to see how that goes down. We'll see. I, I've heard people that have done that, that have uh, sent like love letters or like <laughs> at jet, chat GPT say, I, I would love to have a poem around this topic. That's kind of a love poem to my wife. And it would, I guess, spit that stuff out. So people are doing that stuff. Like it's very, very cool. I was in eighth grade and I was in creative writing and Miss Bahat was her name and we had to write haikus. So I, I got a book and I copied a haiku that, and then she had me come up in class and, and she says, it's really beautiful haiku that you wrote, which is five, seven, five syllables. And I thought I was, I was feeling pretty good. I think I was seventh or eighth grade. And then she showed me the haiku in the book. And uh, so eventually you got to be careful too about using chat because 
uh, I think eventually there's going to be ways to determine if it's literally your, your words or somebody else's words, but yeah. Um, so on a, that college, college campuses have already figured this out for plagiarism. You can actually take and copy text and paste into chat GPT and ask it, did you write this? And it'll tell you whether or not it wrote it or not. Wow. Wow. Crazy. Okay. So question one, <clears throat> and this question, a lot of times the answer is coined, like people say, well, I wouldn't change a thing because this got me to hear or whatever, but Sometimes like you, you have this skill set, this knowledge, this wisdom. I mean, you've got your, you know, you and I aren't far off from age. I don't think I'm 52, but you've learned a lot. If you could go back, rewind it, would you change anything? Would you jump into coaching? Would you jump in? I mean, podcasting back then wasn't a thing, but would you, would you change it? Or would you just say, no, I would have probably done exactly the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I hate, hate to be the, the cliche answer, but I, I don't have any regrets about things that I did because just like I said earlier, even the ones that were failures, I was able to learn something. And I, I'm not convinced that had I not gone through certain things that I would have learned things that I needed to take me to where I am and ultimately where I'm going to go. Now, does that mean if I had it to do all over again, which I think is a different question, would I do everything that I did the exact same way? The answer is no. Because again, I've learned through that context, which ironically is why I tie into coaching and mentorship. Every business success that I've had in small or large part has been about a coach or a mentor taking their experience and imparting it to me in wisdom, which is why I'm so passionate about doing the same thing. But do I have regrets? No. Are there things that if I could do it over, would I do it differently? Yes. And I I can't pinpoint a specific thing other than there's certain things that I wish that I had done longer and and waited some things out more. And there's some other things that I wish I had cut off a little sooner. You know, it's it's more of a timing related thing, but I don't think any of the moves that I made or transitions that I made, do I regret any of them? But I, I think there's some scenarios that if I had it to do over again, I'd have stopped some things a little earlier than I did. I would have start, I would have continued with some things longer than I did as well. Fair enough. Uh, last question. So I'm not going to let you off the hook this easy on this one. You can't be a coach. You can't be a podcaster. You can't be in the mortgage industry, a dream job. And the reason I ask this is because I think it's interesting for guests to kind of, you know, they've listened to you for a while and you're, you are who you are, but like sometimes people have dreams that are like 180 Candyland, Fantasyland type career. Dream. Like if there was anything you could do, Again, I know you're happy and you're content, but is there a, a, a dream job that you would want or a dream career that, you know, maybe you only tell your wife about? You know, I don't know if I'd call it a dream career, but I, I think in an alternate universe, I would have made a really good attorney. And uh, I actually had an opportunity in when I actually did go back part of the story I left out earlier, I did go back and finish my degree from 2007 to 2009. There was a a program that I was a part of, you had to be 23 years or older, you had to have at least 60 college credit hours. And um, you were with a group of 20 people for just over 18 months, I think it was like 20 months, and it was your degree work, you could finish your degree, and they had a couple different options. And during that time, because it was like six to 10, every Thursday night, again, every week for like almost two years. And every professor was an adjunct professor. They, during the day, 
were, had a career in whatever it is they were teaching at night. And one of them was a business law professor uh, who was an attorney by day. And he was part of the family that the governor in the state that I was in at the time, they were related. And so it was this, this really huge legal family and, and in politics and whatnot. And he was in business and real estate law. And I had done quite a bit in the mortgage business, even up to that period of time. And he offered me to, uh, that he would pay for me to go to law school, to become an attorney and to go to work for him in this company. And um, I literally was, I only looked at the dollars and cents because I was making good money in mortgage. I would have had to take a pay cut for several years to get back to where I was. And I'm like, I'm on this trajectory, you know, whatever, whatever. I think that's the only other career that I find really interesting. And, and part of that is uh, my brother was six years older. I've been a little bit of an old soul. I'm technically a millennial. I just turned 41. I'm right on that cusp. So I'm, I'm I guess, a zennial right in between Gen X and, and millennials. But I've learned my whole career from Gen Xers and baby boomers, but I still have the appetite for the younger generation. And I say that to say I've always been able to relate to a lot of people. I've always kind of thought on my feet pretty quickly, been been pretty quick witted. And I think there's a lot of those characteristics that I have and that I really enjoy that would have made me a really good attorney. Uh, I don't like to argue per se, but I can typically argue either side of a, of a situation if I need to, I can come up with with enough logic or perspective. So I think that's the answer to that question is that in a in an alter in an alternate universe, uh, I, I probably would uh, would be in law. I love it. No, it's a great response. I um. Before we uh, end this, is there anything on the tip of your tongue? I mean, you understand the gist of this podcast. Is there anything I haven't asked you or anything that you feel compelled um, to say to the audience before we finish up? Man, I, I feel like I've, I've inserted most of the stuff that, that I'd really want people to hear. I think the only other thing is, you know, something I, I say a lot is, is success is achieved with consistent and persistent effort over time. And I know that those can be a little bit arbitrary words, and it's that over time that people really get stuck on, because that could be six months for some people, or that could be six years for another. But if I told someone, if there was this one thing that you need to do every single day for five years or 10 years, and at the end of that, whatever that time period is, you're going to have the man or woman of your dreams the career that you have or $5 million or, or whatever this huge thing is that, that a lot of people aim for or have goals in. But you have to do this one thing every single day, nonstop for this period of time, but you're going to have this thing at the end. Would you do it? And almost every person's like, oh, yes, of course I would. And what I tell people is that's what you're giving up by not being consistent and persistent at the things you know you need to do to achieve the goal. And the reason that we don't do that is because we don't have the belief that that thing's actually going to happen. Well, how do I know that if for three years or five years or six years, I do all of these things, these daily habits, these non, how do I know that's going to happen? When someone says that, that's an indication that they don't have the belief that these actions are going to lead to that result and ironically, the only way to create that belief is to go out and take action that creates that confidence that you're going to achieve that thing. So you just have to stay consistent and persistent. And that really ties in what I said in the beginning. It's going to be a lot harder than what you think it's going to be. And that's okay. Nothing worth anything in life is ever easy. 
it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be difficult. And I'll close it with this, which my, my favorite quote is one that says, you know, the, the highest reward for man's pursuit of excellence is not what one gets from it, but who he or she becomes through it. Hmm. And that's what we need to be focused on. How do I continue to become the person that I want to be and to add value to people? And if we apply that in our careers, we'll make all the money we need to. Yeah, that's awesome. I, there's one thing I want to say that just, it's a little different, but you made me, I think it's really important is, and I've had a few podcasts where people like one guy was really wanting to be a doctor, but he didn't want to put in the, the, the years of school. But like when you're talking, I'm thinking about like people are so quick to try to expedite success. And like, I, it's just like even a, a relationship, like someone really wants to get married, but okay. So you get married and it doesn't work out. And then you're in your thirties and you're divorced. I mean, if you could, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, if there's really a dream or a passion that you want to pursue and it's going to take years to get there. I mean, I, I really would love people to think about the, what it's going to feel like when they get there, because if you try to expedite success, I don't know if I'm Tommy boying this thing or if it's making sense, but like, I just like look back and think I was so quick to want to get out there and make money. And, and I just wish I would have maybe slowed down a little bit and thought about what I would be happy doing and what would align with who I was. And if that means going back to school, like you did law school or medical school or whatever, I just think it's really important to uh, honor that. So, but Agreed. you uh, are amazing, uh, Phil. I really appreciate it. I feel like I, I, I know you way better. Uh, and, and again, you were just for the audience, Phil's a guy that's super busy. And here, here I am, some dude from Seattle named Dirk reaches out to him and he was so gracious, got on a podcast or got on a call with me and really helped me, you know, with some of the ins and outs of podcasting. And I think that's really also important to recognize is, you know, people want, you know, they want to make people better. And you're the kind of guy I think that really wants to make an impact and reach out and improve the lives of others. And you're just a really giving guy. And I think that's really a great trait. So thank you. Appreciate that. And thank you for being on the call. Thank you for having me. All right. Bill.